0: Standby for Places presents an excerpt from Tata, written and performed by Barbara Matovu. I am a planner. Life makes sense when there's order. Order that has been mapped out by a well-designed plan. Now the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. The apple, me. The tree, my dad although his tree worked better with the changing winds than my apple. Immigrants from Uganda, my parents, Jacob and Edith, came to the United States in 1978. Of all of his dreams for his life and his family, one thing he never planned for was cancer. In 2011, a tumor was found at the base of his spine, Plasmacytoma, which developed into multiple myeloma, cancer in his blood the winds had changed the following are excerpts from that part of my father's journey one afternoon when my sister ruth and i were both at the hospital where he was recovering from his first surgery my dad invited us to meet some of his new friends we walked down the hallway my dad leading with his new walker with wheels which he drove with pride Do you like my new set of wheels? The nurse said I am ready to drive wherever I want to go. You see, I have the brakes here at the handle and I have a place for my books. Or if I get tired, I can just sit right here. Here we are, my new friends. Uh, Hello, everyone. Sorry we are late. I am still learning how fast I can go with this thing. Or, Or should I say how slow? I would like to introduce you to Barbara and Ruth. They are my not-so-little, little little girls. Girls? (laughs) These are beautiful young women, Jacob. Ladies, we are so blessed to have your father with us. He's been telling me how he came all the way from Africa, and I told my friends Louise and Helen here that they just had to come meet my new friend. Jacob, tell us what brought you here. And so he began. Around the table sat his captive audience, a small group of elderly residents along with me and Ruth. They hung on his every word, asking the occasional question, but mostly listening. I sat and listened too, now regrettably without taking record of him holding court. He told them the abridged version of how he got to the United States. They were awed by how his journey went from a goal of a temporary stay for seminary to a more than 30-year career as a college professor of public relations and mass communications. It's a story I'd heard countless times, or at least variations of it, I guess depending on the audience. But something was different about this version. In this intimate setting, strangers became like family. And he felt safe, giving them not just the highs of his journey, but also the lows. In 1984, I got a teaching job at Georgia Southern University. So we moved from Iowa to Statesboro, Georgia. Barbara was two at the time. A year later, the girl's mother, Edith, became pregnant with our second child. Barbara was very excited to be a big sister. Edith's second pregnancy was difficult. She went into premature labor very early. Even today, Ruth here, the second born, is always a little too eager to get things going. <laughs> Back then, the doctor gave Edith shots to stop the labor, but it had to be done in Savannah, 50 miles away. So once a week, we made the 100 mile round trip drive from Statesboro to Savannah. When the shots stopped working at about 26 weeks. The doctor said the next course of treatment was medicine through an IV, so Edith had to be hospitalized. On top of that, insulin shots now had to be administered because she had developed diabetes. It was a very busy time. Taking care of Barbara, making sure she got to daycare every day just to keep her place. And cooking? Ah. I was never very good. Edith had done all the cooking. All while teaching and and visiting Edith and Savannah as often as I could. It was difficult. Barbara missed her mother. We both did. And then Barbara got pneumonia. She had to be admitted to the hospital. But it was a hospital in Statesboro, so she was not even in the same hospital, let alone the same city as her mother. I went back and forth, trying to be there for both of them. There were friends and and church members who volunteered to sit with one while I was with the other, but as a father, sometimes that does not feel like enough. I was exhausted. It was difficult to keep up. At one point, I, I was afraid I would lose all of them. Barbara, Edith, and Ruth. And then what would I do? His voice quivered and broke as he got the words out and began to cry. This was a vulnerability that was new to me. Through our tears, my sister and I could only hold his hand and fall into him. Jacob, that that must have been very scary. But look, your girls are here now, and, and they've grown into beautiful women. I know. Every day I thank God that Barbara and Edith got better and Ruth was born without further complications. I am no longer with their mother, but I am grateful that we raised kind, intelligent young ladies. Before this, I don't think my dad ever told me how scared he was he'd lose all of us. It took the sit down with strangers to feel like a close family. Little did any of us know it would not be long before the tableau of my dad being there for the three of us would repeat, kind of. This time, my sister, mother and I would come together at his hospital bedside. My dad and his doctors were able to manage his cancer. Aside from his doctor's appointments, he was able to get back to the retirement stage of his life. The status quo lasted until late 2013, when one night alone in his apartment, he had trouble walking and fell. He ended up back in the hospital. And I flew back to North Carolina and headed straight there. Hospitals are an odd place to kill time. Television gets old and monotonous after a while, but the white noise helped to stay in a bubble when the world outside hardly stood still. For the better part of November 2013, I couldn't tell you what happened beyond the short radius of Watauga Medical Center. Conversation with my dad was out. The pain made him too weak and heavily medicated to do a lot of talking. But he was alert and could listen. After a while, I felt like I ran out of things to say. Like parents reading to their children at night, my sister and I each read to our father. We each found ourselves reading works that represented our individual or apple-to-tree relationship with him. During their quiet times, Ruth read Bible passages to him. We were raised in the church, which I still attend regularly, but there was something about their faith that reached a depth I always stood in awe of. When our dad was diagnosed, Ruth went back to Boone to help him. He had to move out of his second-floor apartment to a place that would be easier to get around with his walker or a cane. Ruth also helped him get to doctor's appointments. Sometimes it would be long drives down the mountain. There was a lot of time in those trips, and they shared stories of faith. Once he told her one, his mentor had told him, In life, you have all kinds of obstacles. It is like driving in a car down a dark road and having Christ as your light beams coming out of the car. Sitting still in the car, you, you can only see and go as far as the light beams go, which can be scary because you do not know what is coming around the bend or in, and in front of you. But it can also be empowering because as you move, the light goes with you. Jesus promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You see, the faster you drive, the farther you can see accomplishing many great things. For me, I pulled out the only book I had on me, Team of Rivals by Doris Kearns Goodwin. Team of Rivals follows Abraham Lincoln's fight for the presidential nomination of the newly created Republican Party. After Lincoln was elected president in 1860, three of his cabinet members had been his political opponents. Secretary of State, William H. Seward, Secretary of the Treasury, Salmon P. Chase, and Attorney General Edward Bates. The book looks at how formal rivals had to find a way to work together during one of our country's darkest times. Spoiler alert, they worked it out. Something you should know about me. I'm a nerd about seemingly useless information for pub trivia. I especially geek out over History, more specifically anything to do with U.S. presidents. And I'm not just talking about which president wrote the Declaration of Independence or which president was the tallest. I'm talking about how many men have been president. Because when they call President Biden the 46th president, depending on how you count, there have not been 46 men to hold the office. That being said, You may not be surprised to know that, for fun, I'm reading presidential biographies in chronological order, hence why I had Team of Rivals in my bag. It was my Lincoln book. Well, the second out of the three I ended up reading. My dad loved this curiosity path I had created for myself. There you are you can write a show about history and your presidents. Daddy, what would that even look like? I mean, how many other people find these guys as fascinating as I do? Anyway, my dad, as the ever curious academic, loved it as is evidenced by our text exchanges. What does Portis stand for? President of the United States. Fun fact, when I read David McCullough's Truman, I learned POTUS started as a secret code name for President Harry S. Truman. Ah, good. What about FLOTUS? First Lady of the United States. Come on, give me a hard one. SOSTUS. Son of... No. Supreme Court... No. I give up. What is it? Secretary of State of the United States. I've never heard of it that way. That is because I made it up. Sometimes at the end of a phone call, we'd quiz each other. This often meant getting out our respective U.S. president's placemats. Which president appointed the most Supreme Court justices? Who was the first president born in a hospital? Which president previously served as director of the CIA and vice president? Which president's first language was not English? Who was the only president never elected president? who was the only president later named to the Supreme Court. In trading questions, could either one of us have looked up the answer, of course, but we didn't. Where's the fun in that? Eventually, back and forth questions turned into wondering and hypothesizing. Do you think if Hoover had been a politician, the Great Depression would have never happened or ended sooner? Do you think Washington knew what he was doing, or was he just really good at hiding his anxiety? What if Nixon had not resigned? What if Franklin Roosevelt served his full four terms? So, in the hospital with nothing else to say, I read Team of Rivals. Okay, uh, to catch you up, uh, so far the civil war has been going on for a while and Lincoln's like, guys, we've got to save the union. And then I got to the part when Lincoln's 12-year-old son, Willie, got sick and died from typhoid fever. Do you read about a boy's sickness to a sick man? Lincoln sat with his dying son and here I was sitting with my dad in the hospital. I did the only thing I could think to do in an uncomfortable moment. I tried to go around it. I faked a sneeze large enough that would cause me to drop the book and lose my place. When I picked up the book and resettled back in my seat, I started from a different part of the book excuse me sorry about that um let's see where where were we friends and family came to see my dad during his final days my mom sister and i sat by his bedside sometimes in shifts But in his final moments, we were all there together when he passed away. Then began the process of closing his journey. Ruth and I could not be more different. She's tall, I'm average height. She's a talkative extrovert, I'm a quiet introvert. She was a three-sport athlete in high school. I played three fantasy sports in 2017. Yet we both have pack rat tendencies just like our father. Cleaning out his car after he passed away, you'd think he lived out of it. With as much stuff as was in there, there was a rhyme and reason for everything. Napkins in case he spilled something. Jugs of water in case he got thirsty on the road or his water in his apartment got shut off. A snow scraper and snow boots in case he had to hike if the car got stuck in the snow. Maps in case, well, he was old school, maps to find his way on the road. He had a lot of stuff, and that was just his car. In the time between my dad's memorial service on November 23, 2013, and Christmas, my dad's existence was condensed and sorted. With help, my sister managed to clean out his basement apartment where he had spent his last year. She put all his furniture and files into a storage container, and nearly everything else ended up at our mom's house. It was mostly clothes and mail that hadn't been opened. When I went home for Christmas that year, I did what I could to help go through his things. Among the pile was his old briefcase it was as if we had pulled a relic from a time capsule as a child it was a symbol of a professional daddy daddy come come play grocery store with me and ruthie i have to grade papers first then i will play it, wh- where is my briefcase uh, um it's it's in the dining room hey hey ruthie ruthie go get daddy's briefcase and hurry up If daddy grades papers, then he will play with us. Hey, daddy, at school, I said my daddy is a teacher too. And a very important teacher because you have a big briefcase and you give a lot of homework. Homework is how you learn. Okay, go. Let me grade these and then I will come to your your little grocery store. That was the tableau of the 90s in our house. My dad, in his 40s, settling back into his spot on the couch, uncapping his red pen to grade papers in front of the news or a football game. In my mind, he'll always be 40-something. As far as I knew, he was born an adult man. Like in the movie It's a Wonderful Life, when George Bailey is discussing his future And his father says that George was just born older. That's how I saw my dad. Born older, forever middle-aged. We had a couple of pictures in the house when he was younger, but not many. Most of them, I think, were in his 20s, maybe 30s. It wasn't until he passed away that we found evidence among all sorts of stuff that He saved, proving my dad was not born a 40-year-old man. The briefcase was at the stage of old, where it wasn't in tatters, but it was frozen in time from a work life lived. When we opened it, it was like opening a treasure chest. Instead of gold and jewels, we found a paper trail of my dad's life, most of which I had never seen or assumed existed only in the abstract. Inside the briefcase, we found a copy of his birth certificate. Father, Yawasi Bukenya. Mother, Igulasi Namuyembwa. A baby picture. A black and white photo intact, other than the yellowed edges. My first glimpse at my dad as an infant. This little round-faced boy who looked just like my sister Ruth at maybe three months old, sitting on my grandparents' lap. Various degrees and diplomas. Sure, there were his bachelor's and master's, but he had to start somewhere. Here it is. His certificate of completion from Wanpewo Primary School. I imagine the future scholar breezed through his early grades, but that could also be the mythic version of him in my head. And his PhD, the ultimate academic achievement, completed about the time of my toddler years. Copy of the divorce papers. My parents had been divorced for years by this point, but there was still something jarring about seeing the legal document. We were sitting immersed in this treasure chest of sorts when my sister reached into the pocket and pulled out a notepad with our dad's handwriting. His will, or the closest equivalent, his last wishes. It looked like he had worked on it in pieces given by the different dates on various pages. The earliest being June 2011. Like a wave washing over me. That was the day he had told me his life story. Yeah, after his first major surgery, I flew down to see him. I remember one day when it was just him and me and out of nowhere. Barbara, if anything happens to me. I want you to know that I wish for my remains to stay here in Boone. In a year, I will have officially spent more of my life in the United States than... Wait, Daddy, Daddy, wait. Um, will you do me a favor? Write it down. I don't know how this stuff works, but at, at least if you, if you write it down and, I don't know, maybe sign it? That makes it sort of official. I I don't know. Yes, yes. That is a good idea. That is why you are the sensible one. I wasn't ready for just-in-case scenarios. Writing down his wishes seemed like a reasonable compromise. Besides, at the time, there didn't seem to be too much to worry about everything would be fine, right? Thank you for listening to Standby for Places. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so don't forget to hit that subscribe button. To learn more about us and how to donate, visit our website at www.standbyforplaces.org. Until next time.